You have entered the 13, a place where real stories about music, touring, and the beyond are told. Music does something to us. We all experience it in our own way. It can affect our senses, transport us through time, and release emotions. On this podcast, we will talk with people about the power of music and the beyond. What does the beyond mean? Let's find out together. Turn on your metronomes because this time is about to be tracked. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to The 13. I'm your host, Ryan 13, and welcome to this very special edition. I'm going to call it the Christmas Eve edition, even though it may not come out today, uh, of The 13. Today, we have Jeff Drum, who is an amazing person that has given me multiple chances to do this, and we'll talk about that later. But uh, Jeff is a great author of the book, The Land of Kim. He's an amazing host on a YouTube show. He has his own podcast. Uh Without with you know, without further ado, Jeff, what's up, buddy? How are you doing? What's up, man? How are you, sir? <laughs> and all good. No worries. I'm glad we finally got to do this. Me too, man. And I got some I got some hot shit. I got some hot shit to share with your audience, man. It'll be a good little intro. I'm excited. I've been following along on YouTube. It's fantastic. The stuff you're doing, the videos you're doing are are super awesome. I'm so stoked to have you. Uh we met each other on yeah. the Expanding Reality podcast. We did a little panel. You, me, Brandon Thomas, a whole slew of people, Brian Moreno, yeah. the rest is soul. Uh, yeah, man, rest in peace. That's sad, dude. That was sad. I was so, like, he was, I connected with him that day. Like, after the show yeah, was yeah. over, we just talked and had such a great time. He worked at the House of Blues in L.A. I had played the House of yeah. Blues in L.A. a few times, and he was just so such a really nice guy and a yeah, a, a genuinely good dude. Yeah. And he was really excited about my work too and like vice versa. And um it was that's really tragic. But you know, we say la vie, man, such is life. Yeah, you're right. So you've got a presentation uh ready for us. Yeah, yeah, that's correct, man. Um so I know I'm not your uh like we were saying just a minute ago, I'm your your yeah. first guest that's not in the music scene. That's uh, right. I'll tell you a funny story. So I used to do like some DJ shit back in the day and I know how to like mix records and I, I produced a song once and you know, just make me and my friends fucking around when we were all fucked up one night. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so I have three cats and we were, uh, we were coming back from some show, one rave some night and I was driving all these DJs. All my friends are like professional DJs, like in the scene and they get pay, played, uh, paid to play shows. Right. So we're driving back from some rave in North Carolina and they're like, I'm kind of a big guy and all these guys are just like DJs or whatever. And, you know, they're like, you're always out here protecting us. You're, you're the DJ bodyguard. So that was my like DJ name when I was mixing records was DJ bodyguard. Oh, that's awesome. But it was also, I have three cats. So I was bodyguard, AKA DJ three cats, which was my like a uh, <laughs> quote unquote stage name. Um, but that was just like messing around and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> never no, never anything awesome. serious, but I know, I know how to mix records and do, do that kind of stuff. Dude, so that's let me fantastic. fire this thing up. Yeah. So yeah, that's right. That's great. Yeah. Fire it up. That's yeah. That's something, you know, that's our very first sort of non-musical guest. You know, you're, you, you can mix, you can mix records and you can spend some, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm getting over a sickness, everybody. Um, you, so you, you are Down technically musical savvy, you know, you've got it, but anyway, without further ado, I'm going to let Jeff do his thing. This is exciting. Oh, look, the 13 podcast on his stuff. I feel special. Yeah, man. So um, my name is Jeffrey Drum. I'm the author of a book called The Land of Chem. Long story short, it's a 
fictional story of a young man's initiation into an ancient secret society that was responsible for the construction and operation of the Egyptian pyramids. And I'm sure you saw that my, my episode dropped with Brandon the other day where we're talking about Freemasonry and stuff. Yeah. Uh, my, <laughs> the skeletons are out of the closet, I guess, but they never really were hidden anyway. Right. Okay. But yeah, yeah so right I'm a thirty. I'm a thirty. I'm a 32nd degree Freemason as well. And we, I was talking to Brandon about he wanted to pick my brain about Freemasonry, and you know it was kind of like one of those. You know, it was like literally the black and white, vice versa. You know, sure. back and forth conversation with him about that it was really cool. Uh, so long story short, my theory. So I've been researching the Egyptian pyramids for more than a decade now, and I went to Egypt for my first time back in 2017 investigating the idea that the Egyptian pyramids were designed to produce electricity. Right. There's all these theories. The Great Pyramid produces electricity, and they all focus specifically on the Great Pyramid. So I went back to Egypt for my first time in 2017, and I wanted to investigate this for myself. And long story short, as we started touring the pyramids, I saw less about electricity and more about chemistry, because I knew that Egypt was literally the birthplace of the science of chemistry. They were the first place to produce synthetic pigments. They were the first place uh, to produce synthetic compounds. They were making medicines. They were making cosmetics. They were making all sorts of products that require knowledge of chemistry. And chemistry is literally the foundation of everything that we have today in modern society, as it was back in the day, because chemistry also relates to things like metallurgy, the production of specific metals, and being able to harvest, extract, and purify those metals. And we know that these ancient civilizations were doing that. And <clears throat> so long story short, as we began to investigate the pyramids, and I'll show you the first artifact that I saw that really got my wheels turning to thinking that they were producing chemicals instead of electricity. But let's start from the very beginning. And I've never really done the presentation in this order, and I don't know why I put it this way, but uh, we'll, we'll see how Ooh. it goes. Hell so yeah. a couple of symbols from the dynastic Egyptian religion that people might be familiar with are the scarab and the bull. And we know that in all of these ancient civilizations, the bull was deified, right? It was literally a god to these ancient civilizations. We see the same in like modern day India now. The bull is still a very revered animal. And of course, there's cosmological interpretations, right? Astrological, the Taurus, constellation Taurus, all this kind of stuff. And of course, the bull is a very important domestic and agricultural animal as well. So of course, it's important from that nature. But if you look at it from the perspective of chemistry, I'm proposing that the Steppe Pyramid of Saqqara was designed to produce methane gas using a slurry that involved cattle manure, right? So if you're going to produce a uh, methane gas using cattle manure, the bull would certainly make a lot more sense from the perspective of being a deified animal if it was involved in the production of this sacred chemical. So we also see in the dynastic Egyptian religion, the symbol of the scarab, which is a symbol of you know, rebirth, resurrection, and the solar cycle, the rising and the setting of the sun. So that was something that never really made any sense to me, because why would basically a desert cockroach pushing around a ball of shit represent the golden sun and resurrection and rebirth, right? This very pure, sacred, transformative process. How is that? How are those two things related? But again, if you look at it from the perspective of ancient chemistry and the production of methane gas using a slurry that uses animal dung, so the first step in the production of that slurry is the creation and the collection of the uh, manure. So that's literally the operative behavior of the scarab beetle. And these are two esoteric symbols that have multiple layers of interpretation. So the first layer of interpretation is a religious interpretation or a spiritual interpretation. You know, astrology of the bull, 
and of course the resurrection and solar interpretation of the scarab. However, if you look at both of these from the perspective of chemistry, it makes a lot more practical sense that the bull was a sacred animal because it was providing the essential reactant that was involved in the production of methane, and the scarab has operative behavior that literally represents the first stage in the production of the methane process, which is the collection of the dung. So those are two very esoteric symbols, which again have dual layers of interpretation. And if you look at the configuration of the step pyramid of Saqqara, which we have here on the left, it is very, very reminiscent to the configuration of a modern biogas digester, which we have here on the right. So if you look at the original configuration of the step pyramid, it wasn't actually a pyramid when it was in its original form. It was just this single level platform that you have over here. It's called a mastaba. Underneath that, you have the single reaction chamber, which is a rectangular chamber that was excavated directly from the bedrock. And you have an inlet shaft and an outlet shaft. Okay. And that was the original configuration of the structure. You didn't have all these other tunnels at this time. These came around later. So if you look at the configuration of a modern biogas digester, it has the exact same configuration where you have your inlet shaft coming in from the north. You have your central reaction chamber where the slurry, the methane gas basically bubbles up out of the slurry and you collect it in a gas collection chamber above the structure. And then it's collected through a pipe out of the top. And that's exactly what you would have seen here in this single level Mastaba platform. You can see the collection chamber right above the primary reaction chamber. Right, yeah. And then there would have been a pipe or a valve here on the top where they could have just collected the gas right out of the top of the structure. But they began to build these pyramids on top of there for a number of reasons. As the internal structures became more complicated, they had to ensure that these reaction chambers were stabilized, right? You can't just have a freestanding chamber that's under a ton of internal forces and pressure unless you have something around it stabilizing the entire structure. So one of these reasons that they started to build these pyramids was to contain the internal pressure and to maintain the stability of the internal reaction system when these things are operated. They also, let's say, for example, they discovered that there was a methane leak coming out of here at some point. You certainly don't want methane getting into the atmosphere. Sure. So another reason that they built the pyramids on top of this is because they have environmental protection in mind. They don't want these gases or chemicals leaking out into the atmosphere. So you have to have something sealing the reaction chambers and preventing that environmental contamination. So I have a full explanation for all of this stuff on my YouTube channel. So check that out. It's the land of chem on YouTube. C-H-E-M is in the land of chemistry. And again, this is just kind of an overview and an introduction to the theory and how these things operate. And this is in one of the episodes, the function of the pyramid body, because that was one of the questions that always comes up on the channel is why do they build the pyramid structure? All so of, all of the links for, uh, yeah, Jeff yeah. will be in the description, by the way. And real quick, here's my, uh, my segue to the advertisement for Brandon's show. A lot of you have probably been hearing a lot of podcasters talking about UFOs, the TV talking about UFOs, the government releasing videos of UFOs. If you like stuff like that, you should head on over to expandingrealitypodcast.com. There, they talk about consciousness, psychedelics, UFOs, and the beyond. And you know we love the beyond on this show. Check the link in the description for Expanding Reality. There, you can become an expansive insider for all of the mind-melting bonus content with the coolest panels, exclusive interviews, and massive collaborations about all the fringe and alternative topics that we absolutely 
think will expand your reality. Go over there, check it out. Link in the description. I love the host, Brandon Thomas. He's a fantastic person and a great host. Go check it out. Boom. Okay, I'll throw that in and then continue. Sorry. There you go. Yeah, no, Brandon's awesome. And he's, a, he's just such a good guy. And he's kind of been my introduction into doing like the podcast thing because I had my YouTube channel. Me too. And I hadn't really done that many, that many podcast type shows where I was like just getting on with people that I didn't know. And so he invited me on and then, you know, I ended up doing Sam Tripoli's show and all these other shows that I've been very, very fortunate and blessed to do. Um, yeah, which is Brandon, very cool. Brandon totally brought me into, I was doing the YouTube thing, eating, eating yeah. hot sauce for laughs or whatever. And, uh, yeah. you know, cooking, whatever, doing all that stuff. And I said, Hey man, I kind of want to do two or three podcast ep like episodes just for that YouTube channel. And he just was like, yeah. why don't you just do a podcast? Like, and now I'm now I do this more than I do the other thing. So it's fantastic. Great. Yeah, I, I really enjoy it because, again, it, it just brings in different groups of people. So I just did a podcast with two guys from the UK um, They They have a fight podcast. They're like boxing instructors in the UK. Oh, wow. And I was I was I was their first guest that was about, you know, anything that wasn't about boxing. They were like, dude, we just heard about your stuff because they watched Tripoli's show. And they were like, dude, we just wanted to have you on. We thought your stuff is so cool. We're super interested in it. So we want to have you on. And that one's coming out soon too. So it's been really cool to like kind of branch out with different people. Cause I'm, you know, I'm interested in all that shit too. You know, I'm not just like, I'm into the pyramids, but you know, I was, dude, I've done everything. I was a bodybuilder. I did bodybuilding competitions when I was in my younger days. Like I said, I'm a Mason. So I'm into all sorts of esoteric shit, like ceremonial magic, you know, Freemasonry, all this kind of stuff. Absolutely. Of course, I do the pyramids and all that kind of stuff. I was also a skateboarder. I still fucking skateboard from time to time. Um, so yeah, me Shout too, out man. <laughs> yeah, dude, I was I, like, I was just talking about this yesterday. I'm, like, I'm, I'm almost, you know, I'm almost forty years old. I'm fucking forty, yeah. <laughs> yeah and I'm sitting here skateboarding all the time. Yeah. It, it takes a little bit more time to recover if you fall now, but besides that, it's still just as fun as it ever was. Uh, well, that's the main reason I haven't gotten on my board and like probably more than a year last time I was trying to do like a fucking big spin yeah. and I hit the, I hit the edge of my tail and the board just shot like straight up in the fucking air, dude. And if I hadn't pulled my head back, like right at the moment, like dude, like literally the tip of the board went flying oh, right past my face. And if I hadn't moved my head, I literally would have lost a tooth or like busted up my yeah. fucking nose. And I was like, Dude, I'm yep. fucking almost 40 years old, and I could have like lost some teeth doing skateboard tricks out in the fucking <laughs> street, and I would have felt like a real dumbass. So I was like, you know what? It's probably a good idea that I just like hang it up and, uh, you know, like every once but, in a while maybe go out there and ride right. it. But I'm done doing tricks. And the, tricks <laughs> I have a similar story. So uh, and then we'll get then we'll get on with the the the, the show. But <clears throat> I was skateboarding. I was going down my street, and I actually. This, I, I don't know if you call this skateboarding, but I had an electric board that you can control with the Bluetooth and, and it goes about 25 miles an hour. And I was just cruising around the neighborhood. I just wanted to go in a circle. Anyway, the Bluetooth connectivity to the board from the remote dropped out for whatever reason. So I no longer had a break on it. So there's, and I'm heading towards a major street. I was going to like slightly turn on, you know, slow down and slightly turn. Yeah onto uh, the sidewalk but i now i no longer had that capability and you're going 25 miles an hour uh there's there's two things that were going to happen i was going to or three i was going to go into the middle of this busy intersection on my board and die two i was going to yeah. jump off the board it was going to it was going to hit a car cause all kinds of crap or three i'm going to figure out how to stop this thing 
and I apologize for my voice, everybody getting over the sickness. But so I, I went with option three and I don't know if, if you can imagine this, but I kept one foot on the board and then I planted one foot into the concrete. So can you imagine what happened? I did the splits. Uh, I kept yeah, the yeah. I kept the board from going into the you know into the major intersection, but my knee hit the ground and we just uh, I mean just bloodied it up yeah, forever was, and it took like good. three months to heal. It was I was like yeah if this had happened when I was a teenager it would have been I would have been up and going the next day but it, I was like limping around for weeks. <laughs> yeah, the the risk is not worth the reward at these days, man. Right. That's All why right, I brother. never did that downhill shit, man. Like, fuck, fuck that downhill yeah. stuff, dude. I like, I'll do some tricks on a rail or like jump down some stairs, but I'm not riding downhill. Dude, um, I did, I did one step, in, right. in, in, okay. I know I like, we're obviously passionate about skateboarding, but one more thing I was in, yeah. Colo- I was in Colorado and I must've been in eighth grade and I went up the highest freaking mountain I could think of and rode my skateboard down. And I'll tell you one thing. If you're, if your stuff, if your trucks or, you know, or whatever, I don't know. Yeah, I just remember it. Yeah. yeah. It was wobbling no, so dude. bad. I fell off of it, started rolling, but I got up and, you know, kept going. Now, yeah, now there's no way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd be dead. <laughs> All right. So the pyramids are a series of chemical production facilities. So one chemical is the beginning chemical, which is methane. And then that methane is transformed into a series of different chemicals in the different pyramids, very similar to the operations that we have today. So let's take a look at ammonia, which we currently use today as a fertilizer. And this ancient civilization that constructed the pyramids, and I believe that they came around several thousand years before the dynastic Egyptian civilization. And the dynastic Egyptians just re-inherited these structures and repurposed them. So ammonia... The original word for ammonia was sal ammoniac, and the etymology of that word literally means the salt of Amon. And of course, we know that Amon is one of the Egyptian deities, and he is literally the deity of fertility. So again, the esoteric interpretation of some of these symbols from the dynastic Egyptian religion can be reinterpreted from the perspective of chemistry. So instead of looking at Amon as a deity of fertility, it is actually an esoteric symbol for ammonia, the fertilizer. So instead of the chemical fertilizer ammonia, Amon is the deity of fertility. So we even know that the the beginning word, the etymology, the origin of our current word for ammonia comes from dynastic Egypt. And the first evidence of the production of ammonia comes from a place called the Temple of Jupiter Amon, where they discovered the first ammonia salts. So it's the first evidence of ancient alchemy involving ammonia. And during my first trip to Egypt in 2017, we go inside the Red Pyramid, and there's all of this chemical staining inside of the facility, chemical staining on the walls of the chambers, and it reeks of ammonia inside of that structure. And the conventional explanation is that it's from the bats. And fast forward five years later, we find the chemical analysis of some samples that were taken of that black staining, and it conclusively proved that the staining has absolutely nothing to do with bats. It's 100% a result of the chemical reactions that were occurring inside of those chambers. So again, here we have the god Amon, which is again an esoteric representation of the chemical ammonia, the fertilizer. And they were using it for fertilizer the same way that we do today for the production of crops 
And so this is the modern apparatus, the first apparatus that was designed to produce ammonia during the Industrial Revolution. And you can see the configuration of this modern apparatus is very, very reminiscent to what we see in the configuration of the Red Pyramid. So here are three reaction chambers. You have your primary steam reformer, your secondary air reformer, and your final synthesis chamber where that ammonia gas is being produced. The ammonia gas dissolves into water, producing an ammonia solution. Wow, they're even this like reaction set up the same way. Yeah, well, absolutely. So this was designed by a guy called Fritz Haber. And any of you who are familiar with the Haber process will know that Fritz Haber was a Nazi scientist. And I found evidence that Fritz Haber had been traveling to Egypt and perhaps researching the Egyptian pyramids. And I have a theory that he had gone inside of the Red Pyramid and done the same reverse engineering process that I had done in my investigation on the pyramids, which is determining that these vaulted chambers are designed with reduced volume towards the peak of the chamber. And if you reduce the volume of gases, you can increase their temperature and pressure. And you do this by manipulating water within the chambers. And I have an episode on my YouTube channel that has an animation of exactly how all this occurred. And it's, you know, obviously I'm leaving some stuff out for brevity's sake. Sure. But long story short, they were increasing the temperature and pressure of the gases inside of these chambers. And again, I believe that Fritz Haber designed this apparatus as an homage to the place from whence it came. Because, you know, he could have configured this anything, any way. And look at sure, this final yeah. chamber. It's even elevated. You see, these two right. are at the same level. And then this one he put on a stand, which is a little bit higher than the other ones, which is exactly the configuration that we have here in the Red Pyramid. And why, why do that unless it was intentional? Because, right. again, you could have set that thing up any way you want it to do. It doesn't have to be in that position. So, again, I also discovered that the bankroll, the financing for this project, came from an Egyptian financier. So there are definitely some connections between this yeah. project and ancient Egypt. Dude, that's cool. So this is an experiment that we did. A friend of mine that follows the channel set up an experiment to demonstrate the fluid dynamics that are involved in the reaction process. And it actually works the exact way that I thought it would. So we literally set up some chambers here. We filled them with water to see what would happen. And the process works exactly the way I proposed it would. And I have videos of that on the YouTube channel. So this inside of the Red Pyramid, some old rare photos from before the modern restoration, because here on the right, there's a staircase, a wooden staircase that covers this entire area up. Yeah. And you can literally see the fluid dynamic patterns of the staining moving from the upper chamber down through here, through the connecting shaft. And you can see these wave patterns on the lower part of the chamber, which we yeah. also demonstrated. So when you fill this chamber with water, the water comes in from over here and it crashes into this chamber and produces a wave here. And then it crashes into this wall over here and produces a wave. And we demonstrated that in an experiment where we got a tub that was the exact same dimensions. We put a nozzle over on this end and had it fill the thing. And it produces that exact same staining pattern. Okay. And then on. over here on the right, you can just see the, the intense staining. And again, right. everybody says this is from the bats. But some samples were taken from this material. And it, it's literally like every single rare exotic metal that you could ever possibly imagine including things like thorium, which is what we use today in modern nuclear reactions. You may be very familiar yeah. with thorium from all sorts of um, very, very intense industrial processes. So there were five metals that were found specifically. So all of the other ones, like uranium was found, 
There were all sorts of metals, rare, exotic, and some radioactive metals that were found in very, very, very small concentrations, which could be excluded as being trace elements, right? But just background elements that just happen to be in the sample because these samples are very, very um, high tech and it's, it's dialing it down to like the trace elements in terms of what's in the sample. So again, we have to kind of disregard the stuff that is not in high concentrations. However, there were five metals that were found specifically that were in such high concentrations that there's absolutely no way that it could be occurring naturally in limestone. So the majority of that staining is actually something called strontium. And it's a very, very unusual type of limestone where it's not calcium carbonate. So normal limestone is calcium carbonate, but the limestone inside of the red pyramid is something called strontium carbonate. And it's a very, very unusual rare type of limestone, but it can happen where strontium substitutes calcium in the limestone lattice. And instead of calcium carbonate, you have strontium carbonate. So long story short, those are extrusions of strontium that have been squeezed out of the stone due to the temperature and pressure fluctuations. So for this to happen, it has to get very hot inside of that chamber to be able to liquefy the strontium. You also have to have fluctuations in pressure, like you're squeezing a sponge to be able yeah, to okay. get those extrusions to squirt out of the stone. So that's what causes all of this black drip staining to come out of the stone is the extrusions of the strontium. So that was the main thing that they found was that strontium. The next thing that was found is a surface layer that was coating the limestone walls inside of this chamber. And it contained copper, antimony, right? Actually, this might be zinc. So it's copper, zinc, iron, antimony, and thorium in very, very high quantities that could not be occurring naturally. Right. So all of these are, are you know, uh, copper, zinc, iron. That's no big surprise. Antimony is a very, very unusual metal, which, which might be a surprise to some people. But the dynastic Egyptians were using antimony, antimony oxides, antimony sulfides for cosmetics and for pharmaceuticals. And it is one of the first pure metals that was extracted by the ancient alchemists. So the dynastic Egyptians absolutely knew about antimony, but this is possibly proof that they were using it for chemical reactions and for the production of a chemical sealing compound that contained metal microparticles. So it's a very, very sophisticated sealing compound that contained these metals. But antimony isn't the most interesting thing. The thorium is the very interesting thing right. because they found a sample that contained almost 40% of thorium, which is unbelievably high concentration considering that this is just supposed to be a limestone structure that's a burial. So why the hell is there the thorium in there? Right. So I did some investigation into thorium and it brought me back to the first slide that I ever made for my channel, which is the play on words, which is the title of my book, the land of chem C H E M. So the original word for Egypt is the land of chem K H E M, which is the land of the blackness. And that blackness conventionally refers to the alluvial soil around the Nile River, this black soil, this very, very fertile soil. So it's the land of the fertile soil. However, if you look at that from the perspective of alchemy, the first stage in the alchemical process is something known as the negredo, the black stage, right? So it's talking about chemistry again. So it's not the land of the blackness. It's the land of the blackness from the alchemical transformation, 
So I started investigating this a little bit more because I was looking for thorium. And how could there possibly be thorium in Egypt? Well, it turns out that I found the actual real meaning for the word K-H-E-M and what the true blackness of ancient Egypt was. And it's something called the black mineral sands of Egypt. And this stuff is found all over the coastline of Egypt. And you see here, these are where these deposits of black sand are found all throughout Egypt and in the Nile Delta. And in this black sand, they find all sorts of ore. So you have monazite, zircon, rutile, ilmenite, magnetite, and garnet, all in this black mineral sand. And I've also did a chemical analysis on my channel of the ancient Egyptian saw blades. And it turned out that the saw blades are made of a copper arsenic alloy, which is a pretty sophisticated alloy, which produces a metal that is much harder than copper itself. Okay. So the myth that ancient Egyptians were using copper chisels is only somewhat true. Okay. Because there were partially copper, but it was an alloy, which completely transforms the properties of the copper and makes it even harder and more durable. So it's essentially as good as iron because it's an alloy. Right. But again, they're, they're ignoring the fact that they had this sophisticated chemistry. They also found a grinding compound. So the saw blade doesn't actually do the cutting. When you look at modern masonry, they use an abrasive slurry. And the abrasive is what actually cuts the stone. So the saw basically just pushes the abrasive. And then you have this on any sort of grinding or cutting equipment. Yeah. And the abrasive is what actually cuts it. So they yeah, also yeah, found yeah. traces of the abrasive powder. And the abrasive powder contained iron and titanium microparticles. So where did they get the titanium from? Well, ilmenite crystal is an iron and titanium ore. And that ilmenite crystal is found plentifully in these black mineral sands in Egypt. So that was what's actually cutting these really, really hard wow. stones was this abrasive slurry made from titanium and iron microparticles from this ilmenite crystal. So we know what the saw blades were made from. We know what the abrasive powder was made from, this ilmenite, because it's prevalently, prevalently found. And I've researched this again, where, where are these iron ores and these titanium ores coming from? So I had to find evidence of how it was connected to Egypt because we found it in the chemical analysis. So I wanted to be able to prove where it was coming from. So, so again, do you think that, that, and sorry to interrupt, but do you think that, like no, that no, go ahead. not only did they, they use this abrasive to cut the stone, but to also like polish it and make it a super smooth? Yeah, yeah. So of course they would have also had polishing compounds that, that were used to polish the stone. And again, this is all evidence of ancient chemistry. Yeah, it's exactly so what cool. it is to be able to do. And you have to think about the quantity of stone that they were cutting, polishing, right. even, even to make paint. So Egyptian blue was the first synthetic pigment ever created. And it's something called calcium copper silicate, which is a pretty sophisticated synthetic compound. And everything in Egypt is painted with this blue paint. Yeah. So even to make enough blue paint for them to have enough paint to be able to paint all this stuff, you have to be making the paint on a, an industrial scale because yeah, there was right. a paint industry. You have, to, you have to supply all the paint. But, you know, they would imply that this was just done in like little small batches where you would just have like a little tiny amount of paint. Well, how, how are you going to paint all this shit in Egypt with blue paint with this much paint? Right. It has to be done on an industrial scale. So, again, there's evidence throughout even the dynastic Egyptian civilization that they were doing this. Again, I'm proposing that this came along much, much earlier. So, but back to the monazite. 
So the monazite is a um, thorium ore that is plentifully found in this black mineral sand in Egypt. And even today, they are still harvesting these black mineral sands for the extraction of things like um, thorium, titanium, uranium, all of these very sophisticated metal compounds, zirconium, all of this stuff is coming directly from these black mineral sands from Egypt. So that was the true chem. And I was able to connect the thorium that we found inside of the Red Pyramid to being found in somewhere in Egypt. So it was a very, very cool discovery for me to be able to evidence and sort of prove why this could be found inside of this pyramid. And it was a semi-catalytic sealer that somewhat assisted in the chemical reactions because a two-dimensional sealing compound on the walls isn't the most effective way to do catalyst. But there's another, there's another mechanism of operation that I haven't introduced yet, which we'll, probably won't get to that today. But um, So it also involves electromagnetic energy. And I might talk about the, the function of the stone. I forget what I put in this presentation, but we'll keep rolling here. So this is the inside of the bent pyramid, which is right behind the red pyramid. And so, of course, you're going to want to transform that ammonia into something else. So we transform the methane into ammonia, which is exactly what they do in the modern process, by the way. It starts all starts with methane, and that's how the, the red pyramid operated. It transformed the methane from the step pyramid into ammonia. So then you take that ammonia, and you want to transform it into a solid compound. And this is exactly what we do today, because you don't take liquid ammonia or gaseous ammonia and apply it to crops. You, you get pellets of little dry fertilizer. So you have to transform your aqueous ammonia solution, which is ammonia gas dissolved in water, into a solid compound, which is what they were doing in the bent pyramid, and transforming the ammonia solution into ammonium bicarbonate by simply percolating carbon dioxide up through that ammonia solution in this reaction chamber. And the carbon dioxide is actually a byproduct of the ammonia production in the red pyramid. So they were harvesting the carbon dioxide as a byproduct out of the reaction chambers, sending it over to the bent pyramid, and then using that carbon dioxide to then produce the ammonium bicarbonate inside the bent pyramid. And also give an explanation of these sliding valves here and how that was operated by the satellite pyramid behind this structure, which is actually a massive hydraulic pump. So, So now we move up to the Giza Plateau. I'm not 100% sure why I put this slide in here, but this is the central pyramid of Giza. And this was involved in the production of hydrochloric acid. Let me see if I skip something there. Yeah, no, that's right. So, when you look at the great and central pyramids of Giza, I'll talk about the great pyramid here at the end. So the great pyramid I've proposed was producing a dilute solution of sulfuric acid. And that sulfuric acid was transformed inside the central pyramid of Giza into a solution of hydrochloric acid. And they found traces of sodium chloride deposits all over the inside of the central pyramid. And I've also shown on my channel, we recently found deposits of iron oxide. So there's a mound of natural bedrock inside of the central pyramid here. And all of the pyramids are built on this foundational mound of bedrock. So we were looking up into this shaft that was excavated right here. And there is a huge deposit of iron oxide located inside the core of the central pyramid. 
and there's deposits of iron oxide all over the Giza Plateau. And I'm going to be dropping on Monday my episode on the Osiris Shaft. And we had special permission from the Ministry of Antiquities to go down in the Osiris Shaft cool. and record and document down in there. And it's, a, it's an off-limits area, and not a lot of people get the chance to go down there. It's 33 meters underground. And when we were going down in there, the electricity went off and we only had our headlights oh, no. and it was unbelievable. Dude, it was pitch black dark down in there. It was, it was the most badass thing I've ever done. That's and I, awesome. the footage is coming out on Monday. Yeah. Long story short. Yeah. Um, so the, the great and central pyramids of Giza were designed to produce solutions of acid, sulfuric and hydrochloric acids, respectively. So at the end of the book, the protagonist goes to Ireland and he begins to investigate the passage chambers of Ireland using the knowledge that he gained through the degrees of the Egyptian pyramids. So he went to learn to, e to Egypt to learn about the function of the pyramids and returns to Ireland, applies that knowledge to reverse engineering the structures like Newgrange and the passage chambers out in Carroquil and Sligo. And I actually went in 2018 after my first trip to Egypt, I went to Ireland to investigate these structures. And this is, you know, the whole story is a fictional story of my adventure, you know, going through and investigating Egypt. And it was a way for me to paint the picture of what I really think these structures were involved in and actually give a detailed explanation in this story of exactly how these structures operate. But it was just a vehicle for the transmission of the theory. Uh, there's a great quote by Rudyard Kipling that said, if history were told, told in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. And my original idea was to write a research paper but I don't have the qualifications to do that. And nobody wants to read a dry ass research paper anyway. So I wrote a book and it's actually turned out to be the best way to present this material. And again, it's just a vehicle for the transmission of the theory. Sure. Yeah. So again, I, I went through the process of reverse engineering the structures like Newgrange and I determined that they were used to produce a, a chemical called ferrous sulfate, which we know in alchemy as copperous or green vitriol. And it's a very, very useful chemical it can be used to precipitate gold that has been dissolved in a solution of aqua regia. It can be used to produce sulfuric acid, and it can be used to retrieve metallic iron. So it's a very, very useful compound. And there's also evidence. So in ancient Ir Irish mythology, there's a civilization called the Tuatadanan, and it's the ancient mythical gods of Ireland. And they're said to arrive to Ireland with all of this knowledge, science, and magic. And that's one of the themes of my book is that ancient magic is actually chemistry because from the perspective of an onlooker who doesn't know what the chemistry is, it would appear to be magic. So if you set metal powder on fire, it can create all sorts of different colors of fire. Sure. So imagine that chemistry from the perspective of someone who has no idea what it is and they're like, Oh, they're doing magic and they're producing all this stuff when really it's chemistry or turning to clear solutions you know you pour one solution into another solution and it turns red right oh it's magic well no it's not magic it's chemistry right so again it's it, all these stories of ancient magic are simply from the perspective of the onlooker it seems so like a lot stories. of these a lot of these uh you know ancient stories or old stories talk about somebody coming from somewhere and brought this knowledge yes. which is always really right. interesting yep. to me we can go into all kinds of wherever that came from but it's always they were always gifted this knowledge somehow, which is very interesting. Right. And so I propose that this all happened as a result of the cataclysm at the end of the last ice age, where the refugees were fleeing from North America. And North America 
had a very sophisticated civilization that was there during the last and prior to the last ice age, very ancient civilization. That civilization was destroyed, and that's where we get the mythology of the proverbial great flood. Right. So the refugees from this ancient civilization were fleeing with this knowledge already intact, and they arrived in places like Ireland and Europe and also in Africa, bringing this knowledge already intact. And then they moved in, settled in, and they started building these structures as infrastructure projects because they were trying to reestablish their civilization. Oh, wow. So what's yeah. a great way to do that? Well, you have to build chemical reactors so you can make the chemicals to have the products that you need, including fertilizers. You know, we've got to be able to retrieve metals. So we need things like acids to be able to start our metal production again, all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So let's see what I have next here. So there's a stone out in front of Newgrange. It's called the curb stone. And it has a whole bunch of symbols on the curb stone. And no one has ever interpreted what these symbols mean. Well, if you look at it from the perspective of ancient alchemy, this is literally a symbol for a chemical reaction sequence. It's a formula for a chemical equation. And it's literally describing exactly how the internal chambers of new grain operate. So you see these undulating lines here at the bottom? Yeah. This represents water flowing into the chamber. Okay. These spirals here and these three spirals on this side of the stone, well, there's three chambers inside of Newgrange. And you have three spirals, which represent air circulating inside of those three chambers. So what this is, is an ancient oxidation chamber that was designed to produce circulating moist air. Because as the water, as the air flows in, it picks up water, then you have moist airflow circulating inside of this chamber. So it's an oxidation chamber that was designed to transform iron, uh, iron, well, not iron pyrite, but iron disulfide, which was usually in the form of marcasite, into this ferrous sulfate chemical. And you see here on the very far left, you see these three square shapes. Yeah. Well, there's three basins. There's a basin inside of each one of these three chambers. And those basins were used to house your reactants. And you see this transformed crystal over here coming out. Mm -hmm. This is the product. So you put your, you put your marcasite into these basins over here. Yeah. Fill it with water. The air flows into the chamber, causing the oxidation process. And then you can flush the entire system to retrieve this ferrous sulfate crystal. So that's exactly how Newgrange operated. And they literally put an instruction manual right out in front of the structure for wow. exactly how it operated. That's crazy, dude. That's so cool. Oh, Landa Ken <laughs> Yeah, man. Um, so this is from my trip that we just got back from. I mean, it's a couple months ago in September 2022. Oh, yeah, I totally saw this episode. That This was a really cool experiment that you guys did. Pretty badass, right? Yeah. So again, yeah. we're getting back to the function of the pyramid body. So I mentioned all the extremely practical functions, maintaining the pressure, because there's tons of internal pressure. You don't want the shit to explode. Right. You know, preventing environmental contamination. Because again, imagine if on the Giza Plateau, you were producing acids. You don't want that acid escaping out into the environment, or certainly not the gases, because it could produce acid rain. And if you look at some of the erosion on the Giza Plateau, as I mentioned in my re recent videos, if you look at that from the perspective of acid rain, it certainly looks like there could have been some sort of disaster that caused these pyramids to go inoperational, or perhaps there was an environmental event that involved some acid rain, because there's some very severe erosion that we see on the Giza Plateau. 
which doesn't necessarily correspond to the time frame that we're given. Because geologists have proposed that that erosion could take tens of thousands of years to hundreds of thousands of years, where they say that these things are only, you know, 5,000 to 6,000 right. years old. Right, yeah. So, so how is this severe erosion happening that quickly? Well, if you look at it from the perspective of acid rain, I'm proposing that they were producing acidic solutions on the Giza Plateau. But nonetheless, another function of the pyramid body is the fu- integration with the electromagnetic field of the Earth. So this machine here produces an electromagnetic energy field. And we've tested the different types of geology that are utilized in the construction of the pyramids and the monuments around them, the temples and stuff, which is limestone, red granite, black basalt, and white calcite crystal. And we've tested all of those materials in proximity to this electromagnetic energy field. And it has some very, very interesting results, as I'm sure you've seen. Oh, yeah. So the electromagnetic energy flows through the stone, and in the limestone, it will produce... So if you take a metal wire and you touch it to the top of the machine, nothing happens. But if you put a stone on top of the machine and touch the stone or bring a metal wire close to the stone, it produces an electrical discharge into the wire. So there's some very interesting interaction between the stone and the electromagnetic energy field that doesn't occur when the stone is not on the machine. So something is happening when you put the stone there. So then we tested the red granite and the calcite crystal. And the red granite and the calcite crystal do not produce any discharge into the wire because the electromagnetic energy is getting absorbed into the quartz inside of that stone. Because red granite has a bunch of crystalline quartz in it. And so does calcite crystal. It's literally crystalline material. So I'm going to be talking about this in the episode that's coming up on the Osiris shaft. And I'll give you a preview on exactly what it is. So, for example, one of the containers down in the Osiris shaft is made of something called dacite, which is a very, very rare type of stone that is not found anywhere else in any monument in Egypt. And dacite contains microcrystalline quartz. So red granite has large pieces of quartz, where dacite has tiny, tiny fragments of quartz that you can only see with a microscope. Okay. So the quartz operates on the inverse piezoelectric property. So you ever heard of the piezoelectric properties of quartz? We have lots of devices that use quartz in them now because quartz has some very, very unusual properties. Yeah. But you also have things like ultrasound machines that operate on the inverse property. So if you charge quartz with an electric charge, it'll produce ultrasonic sound vibrations. And that's exactly what's happening as the quartz crystal interacts with the electromagnetic energy field from the earth. So we see that the stone itself absorbs the magnetic component of the electromagnetic energy field, and it allows the electricity to pass into the quartz. Where the limestone, there is no quartz in the limestone, so the electricity discharges into the wire. So by charging these stones with the electromagnetic energy field, you're producing ultrasonic sound vibrations. So this container down in the Osiris shaft is exponentially more effective than the red granite. Because of the microcrystalline quartz. So if you have scattered amounts of large, let's call them amplifiers, right, of this electromagnetic energy and amplifiers and transformers of this electromagnetic energy converting it into ultrasound. The large chunks would do good job, but if you have a a piece of stone that's filled with hundreds and thousands and millions of microparticles of quartz crystal, it's going to be exponentially more effective. So very, very interesting stuff. 
yeah. happening with the geology. And we also tested the shape of the pyramid body. Yeah. And as you go to the top of the pyramid, the discharge completely disappears at the top. So it appears that the shape is designed to contain the electromagnetic energy within the structure. And we know, for example, that the Great Pyramid is made of limestone, but the internal core chambers, the antechamber and the king's chamber, are made of red granite. So we also gotten special permission to go to a place called Abu Ghraib, and it's a very, very unusual site that's not even a pyramid. And here, they have these collection bowls and these mixing bowls. And I have a work-in-progress theory in my second book that's coming out that's going to be explaining exactly what this structure is. But these are very, very, and this is another one of these off-limit sites that you have to get permission from the Egyptian government and get a special access permission to yeah, go to these sites. In, in your videos, you could see, like, I think I remember you showing, like, on everything, you were like, I think that on the backside of this, you know, there's going to be a place where this fluid came out and goes into these collection pools or something like that. And there, and you found them all over the place. Yeah. So I think I have that in here. So this is, this is Abu Ghraib, which has these collection bowls. And there's actually two different kinds. The one previous slide are made of limestone. These ones are made of calcite crystal. And you can see the different configuration around the rim here. The previous ones have three holes that are machined into it. These one only have one hole. And these ones are actually originally coated with copper. You can see there the drill hole going oh, into the crystal. Yeah. yeah. And this is the remain of copper oxide. So you can see this green material here. Mm -hmm. That's copper, or it was copper. Right. And so these bowls are, were originally sheathed in copper. So it's a, literally a crystal bowl that was coated in copper. And I'll be getting to what exactly these were doing in my second book. So this is what you were talking about. This is yeah. the first artifact that I saw in Egypt. Cause this was the first site we went to. I had no idea that we were going to get a chance to go here. We had to get special permission to go here. Um, and it was kind of a surprise that Yusuf had arranged for us. This is my first trip to Egypt. So we get there, they unlock the gate and let us in and we start exploring. And I immediately, when I saw this, I was like, okay, what were they collecting here? Yeah. The conventional explanation is that this is for drainage, but this is carved from red quartzite. And you don't go through all the trouble of bringing in exotic quartzite to carve this huge conduit system, nor do you collect drainage water. So when I saw this, I knew it's not electricity, but it was chemistry. And this is literally the first artifact that changed my perspective on the function of the Egyptian pyramids, more for the production of chemicals, because something was flowing through here that they were collecting. It was clearly very, very important to them. So on this year's expedition, we got another special permission to go out there. And as we explored the pier, I knew that there was an inlet, right? Because this is the outlet where it comes out and you collect it. And I knew, and I had proposed in my theory, that the inlet shaft would be directly at the base of the pyramid. So as we, we happened to walk around the backside of the pyramid this time, and I've never come around in that direction. So we're walking around the backside, and I just happened to be kind of, I knew where I was, and then all of a sudden I stumbled across this, which is the inlet to that red quartzite collection system. And if you turn around from this picture, it's literally staring at the base of the pyramid. Okay. And this entire conduit, this is all black basalt out here. So this red quartzite conduit, you couldn't even see it. It was completely underground. 
So why go through all the trouble of using this exotic red quartzite if you're not even going to see it? It was not decorational. And again, they would tell you that this is for drainage water. But again, why would you, you would just drain it off to the side. You wouldn't collect it. Right. So again, this material also has an interaction with that electromagnetic energy field. So does the black basalt. And the black basalt has some very interesting properties related to thermoregulation. And if you get this stone hot, which is what happens when you have an interaction with the electromagnetic energy field, the basalt will start, start, start to get hot and it will stay hot. So it's a very, very interesting material that was also interested, integrated into the construction of these monuments. So this is the Osiris shaft that I was mentioning, and we had special permission to go down in here. And I have, I think my episode is close to an hour, the, the documentary from with all the footage from down in here. Oh, yeah. And there was, again, a chemical analysis that was taken. This is the dacite sarcophagus or container. And this is the one where they took a chemical analysis and found another sealing compound coating this one that has lead, titanium, arsenic, zinc, and iron. So they discovered another coating compound covering this container that has this exotic metal sealer on it. Oh, wow. And they also took a Geiger counter down in here and they tested the ambient radiation in the chamber. Mm -hmm. And then they put the Geiger counter down inside the container and it was double. Really? The ambient radiation. And I've been down in here. And it was a very, very interesting exhibition. And again, the footage is coming out. And but that was the function. And I also explained, you know, how that that microcrystalline quartz and this this material of this this container has never been found in any other site in Egypt. And it came from outside of the continent of Africa. Right. Okay. So wow. conservatively, the deposits of dacite, this this stone are found anywhere from 300 kilometers to 2,000 kilometers away are the closest ones where you could get a, a container of this size from one single deposit, right? Because you need a big deposit to be able to get one chunk of stone that's big enough to be able to harvest that. Right. So a minimum, a minimum of 300 kilometers, they had to move this thing. Wow. So the question is, A, why did they do it? Yeah. And B, why was it never done again? Yeah, well, so it this doesn't sound this easy shaft, either. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So this shaft system was also dated to be anywhere from 850 to 1,000 years older than the pyramids on the surface. Okay, wow. So it's a very, very ancient system. And this is what it looks like. So this is a picture of that dacite container. Very, very rare and exotic type of stone. And this is the final lower chamber and you can see here this is black granite this is the lid right here yeah of that black granite underwater container oh, that's, that's on the third level and it's if they didn't have all this shit down in here if they took a pool skimmer down here which they should do they don't clean these monuments at all but if they took a pool skimmer down here and got all this shit out of here it would be crystal clear blue okay it's unbelievable how how it is it's spectacular being down here so the Great Pyramid of Giza, I also released this recently on my channel. There were new 3D Doppler scans taken of the Great Pyramid of Giza. And again, I propose that the Great Pyramid of Giza was designed to produce a dilute solution of sulfuric acid. So if you look at the King's Chamber, mm -hmm. it has two air, two air shafts going into the King's Chamber. 
Okay. The King's Chamber is a furnace chamber that was designed for the production of sulfur dioxide. So the air intakes, one of them is an air intake, but it was also involved in the ignition process to begin the combustion cycle. If you, so we have the king, this is the king's chamber. Right. This here is the antechamber. This here is the grand gallery. And this here is the queen's chamber. And I'll show a diagram, I believe I have it next, of the Great Pyramid. And you'll see that the configuration of the Great Pyramid is organized very similarly to this modern process for the production of sulfur dioxide. So the sulfur dioxide is pulled through the antechamber into the grand gallery where it's mixed with water. And this is the configuration of the Great Pyramid. So the subterranean chamber is a water pump system that was used to pump water up into the grand gallery and it fills this entire middle chamber system. Those sulfur oxides that are produced in here are then drawn through the antechamber. So imagine filling this entire thing with water here. What happens when you lower the water level, it's gonna draw air in through these, it's like a vacuum. Yeah, it's, okay. As when you pull that water down, it's going to suck air in through these shafts, which aids in the combustion process because you need air inside that chamber. You have to bring air inside the chamber to create the combustion. That process also sucks those gases through the antechamber into the grand gallery, where the sulfur dioxide mixes with the water to produce a dilute solution of sulfuric acid. Right. And the internal chambers of the Great Pyramid were also sealed with a chemical-resistant coating compound that prevented the deterioration of the limestone chambers. Because you, know, you, I mean, you can't have like, that. If you're producing this stuff, like you're getting the H2S coming out of it, which kills people all the time. That's why they would send canaries into mines and things like that. Right, yeah. Hydrogen so, sulfide, like especially with the methane. Yeah, right. So I would, I'm wondering... Do, and maybe you are, maybe you have this and maybe it's coming out later, but like, how did they protect themselves? Cause you know, now we use masks and we have monitors yeah. and stuff. I wonder how they like in the, in the creation of all this. I mean, I see that like they've sealed everything up really well. That's why they stacked everything. That's, but like yeah. when you're literally walking around this thing, collecting this stuff, there's gotta be leaks in certain places and like, Oh crap, Tom just died. He just, you know, like, let me, let me go get him. And then you walk over there to go yeah. save Tom and then you die because this gas is leaking out. <clears throat> I'd be interested to know how they were protecting themselves back then from these, these, these bad, nasty, you know, this stuff ain't, you know, it's pretty nasty. Yeah, so, so like with the, the methane and, and hydrogen sulfide, for example, they would have had, um, percolation processes where you filter those gases out, where you bubble the gases, the methane particularly, up through water, which removes contaminants like hydrogen sulfide. So there okay. were methods to prevent environmental contamination. Okay. And also, I mean, you can keep in mind, like if you're walking around a modern chemical plant, you can walk around the most toxic chemicals in the world and you'll be just fine because it's entirely encased within the reaction system. Sure. So as long as there isn't that exposure, that's exactly one of the reasons that they built these huge, huge, huge amounts of stone around these relatively small yeah. reaction chambers okay. was to completely prevent any possibility of that happening. Wow. Now, that being said, you are going to have to go with ammonia. I mean, we have an, you have an ammonia solution underneath your cabinet. Right. So ammonia, yeah. relatively harmless. Same thing with ammonium bicarbonate. It's a fertilizer. You can hold it in your hands. You can distribute it. 
there's nothing relatively other than the smell of ammonia. There's nothing relatively toxic about that. So that's not really too harmful. Okay. And in terms of the gases, you definitely want those in terms of acidic production. They were producing very dilute solutions of this stuff, okay. which could then be distilled and concentrated if you wanted it to be stronger, which again makes it a little bit easier to work with. Sure. Yeah. But they also would have been able to go through and flush these systems with base solutions where it's completely neutralized that if you have to go in there and replace the sealer, you can neutralize the entire reaction environment. But then if you also look at kind of the mythology of these ancient civilizations, there certainly are some depictions of people with masks and shit. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and helmets and all sorts of different like apparatus where these guys right. are wearing these suits and stuff. Right. Yeah. So what were they using the suits for? Perhaps they were going in and doing chemical reactions that were fairly yeah. dangerous. So these are some of the 3D scans from in the Great Pyramid. And I just wanted to point out, because I proposed in my theory that there's an extraction shaft below the Queen's Chamber. So I've proposed that this is the extraction chamber. And it turns out in these 3D scans, everyone has suggested that there's actually either a chamber or a shaft out of the Queen's Chamber. Other researchers have suggested this as well. I'm the first one to propose a function for it as related to the extraction of the chemicals. But it was actually found, you can see here, this is the scan itself coming out of the central chamber. And this is the termination of that shaft. And so they came up with these new 3D images of based on the scans of these chambers that they think might exist inside of the Great Pyramid. So all the stuff in black is the stuff that we know exists. And all the extra stuff are these other chambers that they think might exist. And here's that extraction system that you can see underneath the Queen's Chamber, which is exactly as I've proposed. Yeah. And here's the full 3D model that they've proposed. Now, I will say that the Doppler technology that they've used is the main focus of this research paper. And they're testing the capabilities of this thing. Okay. And I think that this 3D model is a huge stretch of the imagination based on what can actually be seen in the scans. Because the scans are very, when you look back at these scans, it's like, how the hell are they getting all of this from stuff like this? Right. It's okay. super blurry, right? It's vaguely showing that there could be possibly something in there, right? Sure. And then they're coming up with this super detailed 3D model. So you just you have to take this with a grain of salt, but it is kind of indicating that there could be some possibility of other chambers, especially this large one, this green one here, which other scans have also shown the possibility of this chamber. And this is the one above the Grand Gallery that everybody's talking about, the void above the Grand Gallery that could possibly be this other chamber. Well, this scan also showed it, and this is what they've depicted here in green. Okay. So, yeah, man, long story short, that was the presentation. Perfect timing, too. So, also, so, you know, the shout-out, you know, shameless merch plug. Uh, of course, I have my website is thelandofchem.com. Um, I absolutely love these freaking new hoodies, dude. They're so badass. Yeah, they this is awesome. the fifth-degree logo. It's an alchemical symbol for hydrochloric acid. And actually, I took this picture of the central pyramid and we turned it into a logo. And I actually, I designed this myself back in the day, which is ammonia inside of the red pyramid. Yeah. That's Land of Chem merch. Of course, the book is also available on my website, thelandofchem.com. And it's the land of C-H-E-M, again, which is just a play on words. So instead of the original name for Egypt, the land of K-H-E-M, yep. the land of the blackness, it's the land of chemistry. And yep. it's the exact awesome. same thing. That's so cool. I think that's it, man. Man, I, <clears throat> excuse me, everybody. Again, getting over the sickness. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for giving me, you know, a third As chance. As they say on Mythical Morning, down, down with the thickness. 
Yeah, down with the sickness. <laughs> uh, dink it and sink it. No, you know? Josh, Josh always says down with the thickness, which the thickness. Uh, which, uh, of which of with which I am also down. Yeah, upset. Absolutely. <laughs> Man, I really appreciate you coming on. I hope we can do this again sometime. I love following uh, the YouTube stuff. It's fantastic. Maybe uh, you and me can try some hot sauce sometime or something. We'll do something crazy on on the uh, on the other YouTube channel uh, that I do. I like hot stuff. I'll do that. Awesome, dude. I mean, you know, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, all that good Thanks stuff. Thanks to you, dude. That was awesome. Yeah, this was this was a lot and, of fun and, I, and I very informative. Well, like, what once I get started, I apologize because I'll just like start going, man. Like once I get that presentation going, but no, I'm glad we were finally able to do that. Yeah, no, I love it. And I'm glad. And that's what, you know, Brandon told me that too. He was like, dude, just let him, let him go. And, and I was so yeah. fed. I was like, this is, I mean, it's literally, you know, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat and, and I've seen most of these videos. So I kind of already knew some yeah. of the stuff that was coming, but I learned a lot of new stuff today too. And it's just been fantastic. Awesome. And I really appreciate it. And Man, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and let's stay in touch because I would love to do this again. Absolutely, man. I'll keep you posted. I mean, all the new research is still in the works, and you know, always traveling back to Egypt, so there's going to be more stuff. And dude, I, this is just like the tip of the iceberg. I always put together a, a an exclusive presentation for everybody's show that I do. Yeah, thank you. So I put this one together, but again, it's just like I have like I could do hours and hours worth of stuff, and I can only put so much in these things. So that was just kind of an introduction. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on again, everybody. My handle is the land of Kem C H E M on pretty much all social medias, Instagram, YouTube. Um, yeah, thank you so much, man. We'll do it again sometime. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Everybody, this has been the 13. I'm your host, Ryan 13, and this has been Jeff Drum. He's gonna have all of his stuff in the links below. We'll see you on the next one.